0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause. I'm
1: gonna get a bunch of angry lawyers uh, yelling at me, saying that they're not racist, which, like, fair. But <laughs> you know, a lot of them are.
2: Herman, your your Twitter brand is becoming angry lawyers yelling at you. So <laughs> it seems to be just life.
3: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I am joined today by Vox policy writer Jerusalem Demsis. Hello there. And Vox senior correspondent Herman Lopez, who has some exciting and sad news for you all. Yeah, so this will be my last panel episode for
1: The Weeds. I'm leaving Vox and I'm going to the New York Times to write the morning newsletter. It's obviously very bittersweet for me. I've been at Vox for a long time since it launched, but this is a big opportunity and it just just felt like time for me
3: yeah it's very bittersweet for us too Herman can be an enraging person like when he insists that coffee is a form of soup but I have worked with him for nearly eight years now uh I'm Both incredibly, incredibly proud of him that he's going to be writing at the New York Times, which is richly deserved and will make that a better newspaper, but also incredibly angry that he's betraying me at such a profound and personal level. (laughs) But before Herman leaves, uh, we wanted to do an episode on a topic that that he's really passionate about, or at least uh, a topic that reliably makes people mad at him, which is defunding the police. So we're we're having this conversation now uh, about 18 months after Defund the Police became a major sort of slogan demand idea coming out of the George Floyd protests in, in summer of 2020. And the actual policy response to Defund as a movement has, has been sort of mixed. Some really large cities like New York and Los Angeles have increased their police budgets uh, in the case of New York, despite some sort of pledges by Bill de Blasio to push back on the NYPD. Austin, Texas passed a big budget cut and was was seen as sort of a success story. Uh, But then it reversed the cut, added all the funding back when crime spiked. And then just as another curveball, it recently voted down a ballot measure that would have hired more police. Um, And I I like that example just because it shows kind of the muddle we're in, that a lot of cities seem to be caught between the activist demand for defunding and sort of fear of crime and end up somewhere in the middle. So, some supporters of, of defunding the police could argue that that actually defunding, which we're defining here as, as reducing the police budget while increasing funding for other services, hasn't been tried anywhere. But we do know a bit from social scientists about what happens to crime and other outcomes when police funding goes up or down. So, Herman, walk me through what we know about that. What what do we know about police forces, their funding, and and crime?
1: I think just just to be clear, Dylan got at this, but what we're talking about defund. We're generally not talking about abolition because that's typically a fringe idea in in the sense that like, just very, very few people support it. Generally, I think when people say defund, they mean a reallocation of resources from police to social services that reduce crime. But I think the big thing here is we, we have a lot of research showing that police do reduce crime. Like this is not something that a lot of the public seemingly believes because of some status quo bias that's unfounded or anything. There, there really is evidence to this end. So there's one NBER study, and we'll link all these in the show notes, I think, but one NBER study found that for every 10 additional police officers, there's one less homicide, and that's a finding for the US. Also, the benefits were greater for black victims, which is important in this space because as we know, black communities are just much more likely to have higher rates of murder. The other thing about this is that it's, it seems to be a global phenomenon that police reduce crime. So Elisa Faschetti, she has a study that looked at London police. They did a bunch of cuts of police stations a few years back as part of like their little austerity blitz. And those cuts were linked to more violence. And really, I could list many, many more studies. Generally, like there's a bunch looking at police deployments, what happens when police are pulled back and they tend to find the same thing that police reduce crime. It's important to emphasize here police are not the only tool for fighting crime and violence, but they are a major tool and I think the big advantage of police is that they act quickly in the short term. So you if you can imagine like an alternative to police would be um, building up mental health care. It takes a while to link people to mental health care. It takes a while to build like mental health care systems, get doctors trained, get all of that going, but to reduce crime with police, you just deploy them in a block, and people, based on the evidence, will just very quickly stop doing crimes in that block, and they won't be just punted to other areas. So the research suggests that, that crime permanently is is truly decreased. So, I think that's the biggest problem with defund as a concept is just and and not not just as on a policy level, but on a political level, is this. You know, understanding that police really do reduce crime and violence, and especially now when we're dealing with a murder spike, it's it's had trouble building up any significant momentum.
2: I think that this conversation to me always feels a bit unmoored, right? Because... The fundamental thing that I think that most people believe, right, is that it would be great if there was, you know, no crime and no reason for the state ever to be enacting violence. And that's kind of like the ideal utopic way that you would engage. And so what, what that leads me to believe is that most people would also probably prefer a world where if you had the option to reduce crime via a method that does not require the state to enact violence on people, that that would be preferable to a method that requires the state to have at least a threat of violence. And criminalizing something and like putting people with guns, um, that have the ability to shoot you is saying that, like, if they stop you and say you need to do something, and you don't comply, that the threat of lethal force is hanging over your head during that entire interaction. I, I think the part of the conversation that gets kind of lost here is that if there's an alternative to reducing violence that does not require police officers to be using guns and to be potentially putting people into um, situations where people are dying, I think that that's important. And, you know, so Mariama Keba, who runs Project Nia. Um, She wrote uh, an article in the New York Times saying, yes, we mean literally abolish the police. And this line that she has in there is she says, quote, we don't want to just close police departments. We want to make them obsolete. And so the idea here is not that, you know, you just shut down police and we just abandon individuals to uh, the fact that there's no other social services or supports to reduce violence. It is recognizing the constituent parts of what policing does and creating and finding alternative ways to fulfill those roles. So, you know, there are some things I think That are pretty obviously can be done, like for instance, traffic enforcement, which is a major part of what police officers do. Almost all of that can be fully automated and would make people safer, would reduce car accidents, would make it such that there's not subjective changes and choices being made by police officers to determine who gets caught. So that removes a large portion of what police officers do. Then there's the second section of like solving crimes. Like it's obviously important for. You know, someone to be figuring out like who is committing burglaries, committing murders, committing rapes. We know that police officers are actually, you know, not often very, very good at this. Uh, in 2017, 61% of murders um, and manslaughter charges were cleared. 34.5% of rapes were cleared. 29% of robberies were cleared. 13.5% of burglaries were cleared. And clear just means that someone was arrested and it was closed. It does not mean the right person was arrested and that it was closed as a case. So. Clearly, we need a better way of solving crimes. It's not clear to me why it's the case that a police force has to be the one to do this. It seems to me that like the ability to do interviews and do research and create algorithms and run through information and processes, that there's other systems that could be created to help solve crimes in that way. And so I think the really hard part of this, though, is the preventing crimes uh, as, as well. And we know that there are certain things that can be done, things around like urban form, for instance. There's studies that show that if you increase lighting in, in cities, you can reduce crime by a significant Significant number. If you create other types of social service supports, you could reduce the social determinants of crime. There are programs and policies that I'm sure we'll talk about later um, across the country that have been tried to do this. But you know, I also just think here that a lot of the research and studies that at least that I've been able to look through um, that were finding that police reduce crime are often finding that police are reducing property crime and that there's like less support for the idea that police are reducing murders or violent crime. Um, so I looked through a few of these. I mean, I think the study that you just cited, the um, Herman that police force size and civilian race study from NBER, I mean, it finds that in large cities that while you you don't get the kind of reduction in violent crime that you do, that the average is kind of obscuring these variations that is going on. Um, And so increasing in police force does not actually decrease violent crime for black civilians in large cities. So there's a lot of variation here in the data. And I think that that's important to note that often what we're talking about here is that, yes, there's quite robust findings that police do reduce crime. And in particular, they reduce things like burglaries, auto thefts and things like that. There's not as much support for the idea that they reduce murders. And so often what we're saying is like institution of policing is being supported by the idea that it is worth the day to day violent harms being done um, to people's ability to live just freely in society in order to prevent more burglaries when we know that there are other ways to prevent burglaries. So. I think that's probably, to me, like the best case for defund at this point. But I'm sure that you all have a lot of thoughts (laughs) on what I've said.
1: So I would disagree with that a bit. Yes, there are some studies that show police having a bigger effect on property crime than violence. But even in these studies, police are very, very often found to have an effect on violent crime and murder. It's not always as large as the effect on property crime, but sometimes it's actually larger. And either way, there's an effect which seems significant and good. Also, when you look at specific policing strategies, there's even more evidence that police have an effect on violence and murder. There are strategies that focus on specific areas or problems like hotspots policing and problem-oriented policing. There's also strategies like focused deterrence, in which police and other community leaders go up to individuals who are likely to commit violence. And these individuals are told, hey, you either stop this and we'll give you the support you need through social services, or you'll face serious punishment like somebody will crack down on you. And for focused attorneys, there's not that great of research. There's some supportive research, but for hot sauce policing and problem oriented policing, the evidence is really good that these actually have effect on violence and murders. A lot of the policing that's done does not perfectly follow these models that I'm, I'm speaking to. But like when you do follow those models, you see big reductions, at least in the short term, in shootings and murders. Um, and yeah, there's there's variation from place to place. I think the fact that like the, the results can be unevenly distributed based on like how big a city is or really how big the minority population in the city is is concerning. But I would just push back on that in, in that sense, because there's there's totally a world where you say, look, police do reduce crime, including murder but they're not worth the cost. Because obviously there's another cost to what policing do, meaning they arrest people, harass people on a day-to-day basis. Just as an example, that MBER study found that yes, police reduce murders, but they also, when you have more police officers around, you see more quality of life arrests. And like these are things that you know, we as a society can very easily ask, like, should police be doing this at all? Like, do we really want to put an armed person in charge of these quality life offenses, potentially escalating these kinds of situations? Like, that's a totally fair question. And maybe those costs are significant enough that we decide, no, police should not be doing that. Maybe we, they can focus on the murders, but
3: not much else. I personally just think that that's how I look at it. I, I just wanted to to uh, ask you to dig in a bit on, on some of these... These different ways that police can can reduce violent crime that you were you were mentioning that I think you can imagine a few different pathways here. Like one is kind of the the hotspots policing model where you just send a bunch of cops to a place and you're you're less likely to murder someone. Presumably, if there's a cop around the corner, um, I, I would be at least. Um, but uh, then there's there's sort of a a, a more deterrence based model uh, that I think Jill Levy and, and Ghetto Side lays out in sort of a non-quantitative but but persuasive way where you just increase like homicide detectives and if you get your clearance rate up and people know that they'll get caught if they murder somebody that 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 reduces it and it seems like those those two pathways have like very different implications for what kind of police you want to hire and, and what you want to have them doing.
1: Yeah, so I mean on the the ghetto side front, I think if, if we're being honest, like the research for that is just not very good. Mm. They're really is not much empirical evidence that, you know, solving way more murders would actually deter more murders. I say that, though, even as I totally believe that that would be the case. Mm -hmm. If you solved 100% of murders, I think there would be a strong deterrent effect. I mean, it's a really intuitive concept that if you know you're going to get caught for a murder, you're just going to be much less likely to do it. Um, The the thing is, it's, it's a very difficult thing to study in an empirical fashion. And to the extent it can be studied, I mean, you talk to researchers about this, criminologists, they are extremely frustrated that it is difficult to find any good studies on this. Like, they want to do these studies. There's not the funding. There's not the interest. So on and so forth. On the other side, in general, there's just really good evidence that when you make police more focused, um, and there are multiple ways you can do this they are much more effective at deterring serious crimes, and I mean violent crimes and murders, because that's really, personally, what, what I'm most interested in when I look at this line of research. Like I said, there are multiple ways to do this. One is hotspots policing, where you literally just draw police onto a block, for example, and they deter violence in that block. Another is problem-oriented policing, where policing might focus on a very specific problem in a community. And this, when you actually start speaking about how this works, you can actually imagine a world where defunders support this, because. When I say problem-oriented policing, they look at a problem. So, let, like, let's say there's there's a ton of robberies in an area, they will look at that problem and say, okay, how do we stop this? That does involve police to some extent. Obviously, police need to catch people who have caught ro- actually done robberies, but. It might involve, like, look, a lot of these people are robbing people because they're poor. So maybe we need to bring more social services to an area and do that. And and then, like, they start solving the problem. They're really—the it's the pr- method is supposed to be really analytical where they actually, like, iterate on what they're doing and make sure that the, what they're doing is effective. This is really where, where it often falters, I think, that a lot of police departments do not fully commit to, you know— evaluating themselves and being honest with themselves and saying like, are we doing this right? But generally the idea is like, hey, you focus on this problem, you focus on the small population actually committing this problem, you can have better results. That's true for hotspots policing. It's true for problem-oriented policing. It's true for focused deterrence. And I think a good contrast here is stop and frisk. There is a model of stop and frisk that I guess could be more focused, but like how it actually worked in New York City, for example, is police basically harassed minorities in mass like they they would just go to an area and just stop and frisk basically everyone there i think that's one reason that the research base for stop and frisk is really bad finding basically no effects in in a lot of these studies because they weren't actually catching bad guys doing that in fact police were wasting a lot of time stopping innocent people which is not going to have any deterrent effect or really much value and by comparison, if you know how crime works, you know that it's super concentrated, that it's a few people in a city usually committing the majority of murders, the majority of serious crimes. And those are the people you want to target for deterrence effects. And police just have not done that, I think, in a, in a good way in the U.S. for, for a long, long time.
2: So one of the things I, I think about here, too, is the importance of being comparative about a better better world. So I think people often will um, criticize alternatives to police in reducing crime, and they'll say things like, it's really difficult to scale some of these programs, um, like the Becoming a Man program in Chicago, for instance, which um, shown to reduce crime significantly. To, or we, in our recent podcast, talked about um, the CBT effects of reducing crime and scaling things like that is really hard. But also, like, scaling things like... Police reform is also incredibly difficult. Um, We're talking about tens of thousands of jurisdictions across the entire country, all operating relatively independently. The federal government has like some um, power in terms of funding. And of course, the DOJ can open up investigations if it wants to. But in terms of rooting out the culture that has developed in these places, it is nigh impossible to be doing that in any kind of systemic way or in any kind of way that really scales. And I mean, I just want to put some like examples on here of like how some police departments are behaving on a wide scale uh, with with just a full culture of impunity at this point. I mean, there's a famous case last year where Philadelphia police pulled a 29-year-old mother out of a car while she was fleeing a violent scene of a protest. They took her child, they posted her on social media, and they beat this woman. And then they posted this child on social media as if the mother had abandoned her kid and shamed her publicly for it. They are now, you know, having to pay her millions of dollars. A study conducted after um, MAP v. Ohio established the exclusionary rule, which basically prevents um, illegally obtained evidence from being introduced into court, uh, found that uh, basically New York City cops were just lying constantly about how they were finding evidence. Cases where officers admitted to finding drugs on a person went from 35% to 3%. And cases where suspects, the, the police claimed that suspects had dropped or through drugs went from 17% to 43%. 92% of judges, defense attorneys, and prosecutors interviewed said they thought that police were lying about how they were obtaining evidence. I mean, famously, after Derek Chauvin uh, killed George Floyd, Minneapolis police issued a statement that doesn't even include the fact that Chauvin knelt on Floyd. Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. I mean, we know this from civil asset forfeiture. We know this repeatedly from attempts to reform. We know this from even when the black community has been pretty unified. Uh, I mean, James Foreman's book, Locking Up Our Own, is just a a, a, a a really good story about how they are repeatedly asking not just for more police officers, but also for more social services. And they just get more police officers over and over again. So I think that you know there's a selective sort of scrutiny being placed on the idea that other sorts of things can be fulfilling this role of reducing crime and making America safer when there's been like very little proof to me at all that you can actually scale any sort of police reform reasonably. Pat Patrick Sharkey was actually just on the Ezra Klein show being interviewed by Roger Karma. He's a criminologist at Princeton. And he said that in his his work that he'd found that in a typical city with 100,000 people, every 10 nonprofits formed to build a stronger neighborhood um, uh, to deal with the problem of violence reduced violent crime by 9%. So these are extremely heterogeneous uh, uh, groups. like These are not the same groups being formed in every single city. And yet you're able to see What a large decline in violent crime happening as an effect here. And so I do think that part of this has to be a conversation about, you know, yeah, it's really hard to do that. It's also really hard to reform police and potentially impossible to do so. So pick your heart at this point is where I kind of am.
1: Well, I would say it's the reason i don't think it's impossible is because other countries do not have anywhere near the levels of violence we do police violence we do and i think there are lots of reasons for why they, they have those differences not least like race obviously plays a role into it but i think another big thing is guns like the us has, has way more guns and i i bring that up because i think that's like a a thing that just often gets you know lost in this conversation that i think americans take for granted just how bizarre this country is in terms of the massive amounts of firearms that are everywhere like if you're a police officer in japan you can go into a house because you have let's say you get a mental health call this guy is acting funny like police need to go in and intervene you can basically assume that that person will not have a gun and it's a guarantee right if you're in the u.s you absolutely should not make that assumption as a police officer like you will put your life at risk if you assume that a person does not have a gun because there's a very high chance that person does have a firearm. And like, I think this is such a big issue in terms of reforming the police in a serious way, like getting them to stop being as aggressive because that's essentially the problem is police are way too aggressive in the U.S., especially when compared to peer countries. But like, they're that aggressive for a reason. I think there's some sense of exaggeration. Like, they they think their jobs are more dangerous than they truly are. If, like, you just look at the statistics. But at the same time, it is also true that just about any situation can escalate in the U.S. because there are so many guns around. Um, I don't know. One way I've, I've thought of this is that, like, this might just be the cost of a more armed society. And, like, a more aggressive policing is the cost of a more aggressive society. I mean, you just... You just look at this on a practical level. The state is supposed to have a monopoly on violence. Like, that is why police exist in the first place. That's why the whole criminal justice system exists. And in an armed society, that's just not really true. Because at any point, civilians can, like, act out and literally kill someone with just a pull of a trigger. I think that limits the scope of reform. Just as one example, if you're going to send social workers to a call instead of police, because let's say somebody is having that mental health case— how do these people react when that that person has a gun like that at least means you need police officers around as backup which means that police have to have a presence in a way that you know again looking at the example of japan or the uk or norway that might not be true like the the, you might be able to send social workers in there just fine without any consideration for police um and you know it's i don't like this if it was up to me the u.s would not have so many guns the second amendment would not exist at all but like that's not the the reality of what we have today and it it unfortunately i think just makes it you know much more difficult to consider um like can we actually do something to strip down police power in, in a significant way just just one more example because you mentioned traffic stops and my hunch is that, yes, we can do way more to, you know, reduce police presence and traffic enforcement. But, like, one of the problems here is a lot of crime guns are found in the course of traffic stops. Most traffic stops do not end up with the police getting a gun. But, like, if you look at New York City's data, for example, most of the guns found that are illegal are found in the course of a traffic stop. So, if one of the goals, for example, is to get guns off the street because we think they're bad and, like, you know, that reduces crime. If you're suddenly automating all traffic enforcement, police aren't going to be able to do that anymore. That means we're going to have more guns out there. So it's kind of like the reverse of what I'm talking about too, where it's not just police have to go in there and be more aggressive because they think a gun is around, but police are also going to have a harder time finding guns. And because there are so many guns, it is good for police to find guns and and reduce crime. I, I just think that like, this is one part of this that like from a global perspective is really difficult. And it, I think it, it not only makes scaling police reform harder, but it also makes, you know, doing the other reforms harder because at the end of the day, a lot of them are supposedly going to rely on unarmed on people interacting with people we think might be dangerous in, in a lot of situations.
3: So I'm, I'm going to uh, call a quick break here and we can keep going into some of the sort of nuances of the policy here. But I, I also want to talk a bit about the the politics around defunding the police, which we're starting to get into a little bit and in, in sort of the fears of backlash to crime. So uh, stick with us. We're going to take a quick break.
0: B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow slash weeds.
3: Okay, we're back. So defining police is a policy idea. We've been discussing it as a policy idea. Uh, Herman uh, does not think it's very good. Jerusalem is somewhat more sympathetic. But you can't really discuss the policy aspect of it without delving into the political implications. And I think that that was implied by some of what Herman was saying about Firearms and and sort of the political difficulty of disarming the American population, making sort of police reforms that get guns out of police's hands also difficult. But also just bluntly, Americans don't seem to want to defund the police. There was a a Pew Research Center poll in October that found that only 15 percent of Americans supported reducing uh, police spending, which is much lower than the numbers in 2020 during the height of the protests when of support for reducing police spending was uh, was peaking. Um, And by contrast, 47% of Americans, so like three times as many as want to reduce police spending, want to increase it. And interestingly, among Democrats, Black and Latino Democrats are more likely than white Democrats to support increasing police funding. And I think there's also just a narrative around defunding the police caused by some Democrats, uh, notably Jim Clyburn, the the House Majority Whip, who have argued that calls for police defunding cost the Democratic Party seats in 2020. Uh, Glenn Youngkin, who was recently elected governor of Virginia, repeatedly attacked his democratic opponent by lying and saying that that his opponent wanted to defund the police. He at least thought that was a really potent attack. I'm not personally super convinced that defund was was crucial in, in 2020 or 2021, but I did want to sort of open up the floor for discussions of of the politics of this because sort of the the policy merits of of defunding as a tool to reduce crime and, and protect citizens against. Uh, Violent police officers sometimes get muddled with sort of the political viability of the idea. So I wanted to open up to you two to to talk about whether there could ever be a political base for this and and sort of what what political base there could be for for other approaches to, to tackling this problem.
2: So this is um, sort of a framing that I also got from the Patrick Sharkey interview with uh, Rojay Karma on The Ezra Klein Show. And it was essentially framed as a politics of abundance. Um, the A lot of the um, support for social services to take on some of the role that policing has played is actually popular. So, and wh- what I mean by the politics of abundance here is just that if you don't make it, like you need to take things away from police in order to afford things for social services. The, that is really important in order to actually achieve the kind of popularity that you need um, in order to have you know support for this these kinds of policies at the local level. So I I think it's quite clear that people are generally in favor of you know more mental health services, more homelessness services, drug addiction, opioids, things like that. Um, the stuff is very popular, and people want to see that stuff happening. I just think that placed in opposition to police funding is not going to be popular both because I think that police lobby is actually quite powerful and politically potent, but also because we live in a very polarized electorate. And um, anything that's going to kind of trigger uh, one side's extreme or the other is going to push people towards their existing camps, even if there's potential for, for action. So I, I think I would just caution that I think people like to talk about how, you know, if, if Democrats had messaged this one way or Reform advocates and messages. Another way that we would have been in a much different place. I think that there are definitely some marginal changes that could have been made to make things better, and that that's an extremely important thing to do and to care about because these are very serious issues, and people should care quite a bit about making sure they're saying it in the best way possible in order to achieve the greatest support for the policies that they care about. But I, I don't think that this is a fundamentally a language or communications issue. I think this is fundamentally a cops are politically powerful and attempting to reform or change that institution or even insinuate that there is something wrong with the institution of policing at all will achieve the sort of backlash that we saw happen last year.
1: This is this is something where I think the politics and policy actually go together, where like what you're saying is like a politics of abundance. I mean, I've always I've struggled with the framing of defund the police, especially from progressives for a while, because like, obviously, Democrats are passing bills worth trillions of dollars and it's like, why does that social services money or any of the other funds to like reduce crime have to go like come from police budgets? And mechanically, like there's just like one way that this doesn't frankly make any sense. Uh, most uh, funding for social services is done at the state and federal levels, also some at the county level. Police funding by and large is done at the local. Including county level, so cities and counties are funding their own police departments. So, like, let's imagine a city cuts its police funding. Like, how is that money going to end to the, like the social services people are thinking about? Because those are run by the state. Like, is the city going to give the money to the state? I mean, that's if you talk to just about any local official anywhere, that that would sound ridiculous to you because local officials are not going around giving their money to to state governments. And also, the the amount, frankly, the amount of funding that would be necessary to scale up social services. So If we're talking about something like mental health care, you need way more money than, like, even police budgets can amass to because mental health care is just expensive. Like, and if we're including all these other interventions, like, you know, there's a good argument that, like, these police budgets cannot cover education, mental health care, enforcement of gun control laws to the extent that's a thing you want to include in there, on and on and on. It's just a, a strange thing. but.
2: Well, I I would just, I would just say here, Herman. I mean, you could definitely take the money away and use it to put streetlights up in places that aren't well lit. You could use it to, um, yeah, but how
1: I agree with you. There are some areas where you can do that, but like, I don't think that's going to take that much, like something like building street lighting. That's not that expensive. It's, it's not just not going to be that much of a chunk from the police budget. And it's probably not going to be that expensive a thing to do. And it's. Frankly, not going to have that much of an impact on crime. I believe street lighting has an impact on crime, but it's not like you can just build street lights everywhere and crime goes to zero, right? So, like, there there are considerations there too. The other thing, though, is you, you mentioned earlier how we the the goal is to make police obsolete. It's not to necessarily get rid of them, like as just because you want to spite them, and like when you think of that framing, like if you're trying to make something obsolete. You don't normally say, let's get rid of it first, and then it's obsolete because we have these other things going. What you first do is build up the other things, and then once you show that you no longer need, in this case, police departments, because we have so much social services that crime has truly dropped, at this point, we're, we're probably fine you know, scaling down the level of police departments because crime has dropped because we have these these stronger gun laws we have so much mental health care we have better education initiatives on and on and on now we can reduce the size of police and this is something where i think defund the police was just like framed backwards essentially this idea that you defund the police then fund these services and then see a reduction in crime seems to me like if you want to do this you should do the reverse where you you know build up these other services and then over time crime will drop i believe that truly do and like then you can scale down the police departments because you just won't need this. I think a good example of this is actually fire departments. Over the years, we have built a bunch of regulations, laws, and construction, and, you know, just, like, safety. Like, people have fire extinguishers in their house much more often than they used to. Like, fires are just not as big of a threat. So, in theory, I should say, (laughs) that should mean fire departments are scaled down. What's actually happened is fire departments have taken up all sorts of roles that they didn't have before but like you know in theory that could mean fire departments are reduced in size because we have built all this other protection against fires it could be the same thing with police we built all this other protection against crime and then in theory we can reduce the 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 scale of the police force so i think this is just one way where, where defund has never really made a convincing argument to like i mean me personally but i think just the general public is why you need to cut police departments in the first place to actually do these other things. In fact, to me, it actually just seems backwards to do that.
2: Just a quick introduction here, um, that the uh, the the uh, finding around housing developments, um, increasing street lighting, reduced um, nighttime felonies by over 30%. So I agree. There are places that are already lit, so it's not much, it's not that like you could do it everywhere, but it's a significant finding, I would just say.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And actually, um, one of the reasons that like hotspots policing probably works is like some of the studies show that it's just police being around. They literally might not have to do anything. It's kind of like a scarecrow effect where, you know, they're just around. They look at people who is going to commit a crime in front of a police officer, uh, like a very small number of people who are incredibly stupid. So it is just not very likely to happen. And actually, one of the arguments against these studies is like, maybe you could put other people there, which I mean, in practical terms, like a city is not going to hire like a bunch of teachers and just put them on a block. That sounds ridiculous. But one way you can, quote unquote, put other people there is by like doing street lighting, making that a lively neighborhood by, you know, revitalizing it, letting the restaurants flourish and and that kind of thing. And like, yeah, over time that would reduce crime there. The, the thing is like, police obviously offer a lever where you can be like, I'm going to send someone there right now and like that will reduce crime right now. So I-, I think that's a key difference. Totally believe that the street lighting stuff works. I'm just saying like,
3: you know, there's there's limits to it. If we're thinking about sort of different kinds of political movements and and which ones are sort of best suited to, to getting the reforms that would actually like solve both like ineffectiveness of police and, and preventing crime and sort of police trigger happiness. I wonder if an interesting model here might be the the ed reform movement in the U.S. The education reform movement. So, like, if you're listening to this and you instinctively are like, "I hate charter schools," I hate like ed reformers. Like, bracket what you think about the merits <laughs> of, of the movement for for a second. It was a pretty remarkably successful effort, mostly by wealthy donors and and sort of philanthropies in the United States, to undermine the power of teachers unions and substantially reform the way that a major sort of municipal profession was structured. And that usually took the form of decreasing sort of protection against firing, increased sort of accountability against certain metrics like tests. And when you compare that to demands for defunding, it's relatively modest. Like they didn't want to defund teachers. They wanted to increase funding for teachers. They just wanted them to, to, to operate very differently. And that was still a Herculean political task and still one that that has caused incredible sort of resentment and and Sturm und Drang uh, to this day. But like, it seems like something like that targeted at police departments, even if it's not focused on defunding, could get some of the results that we're looking for. You weaken police union contracts. You make it easier to fire cops who are violent. You sort of hold cops accountable for f- by various metrics by which you could include sort of use of force complaints by by members of the community to make sure that you're like and i think there's there's been uh there's been a, a correct rejection of the idea that this is a problem with just a few bad apples um but i th- i think sort of you could import some of the techniques uh and some of the success of the ed reform movement to a criminal justice reform movement and get kind of The middle path that we're all kind of groping toward here between defunding and just like letting these unaccountable armed gangs of police officers run amok in our cities
1: one thing that i think everybody understands on all sides of the political spectrum is police unions are way too strong like that that seems like it should be an easy political target i think at the national level i think where it gets tricky is at the state and local levels police unions are immensely powerful and, like, weakening them becomes much, much more difficult there. But, yeah, I I mean, you know, I sent out a few stupid anti-union tweets a few (laughs) years back when when Vox was unionizing. I'm now fully pro-union. But one of the reasons I tweeted those things was because my experience with unions and, like, my reporting was dealing with police unions, which are just, like, awful institutions and have way too many protections for even the worst police officers. And I think... Uh, I would say, like, a lot of people get stuck on, like, the the contracts and, all like, the legalese of what police unions do. But I th- actually think their worst effect is cultural in that, like, they create this environment where they are... I don't want to repeat the statements that they, they make after police shootings because a lot of them are just, like, this 12-year-old deserved it, like, along those lines. And, you know, you can imagine... People in the union shop talking to each other and just perpetuating those kinds of ideas to each other. I think that cultural effect is horrific. And like, in fact, you often see police chiefs try to do reforms and like the rank and file, quote unquote, which means the union just pushes back, destroys that reform, even if it's technically in place, the police officers aren't actually doing it it's just like a massive problem and i think again it's like one of the places where politics just become really difficult because the the only people who can really bust these up are local and state governments and given how powerful these police unions are at like in at those levels it's it's hard to see like that actually happening but it is one avenue that we that definitely needs to be happening if we're going to make reform scalable i think
2: i think one of the big problems here is that people always are trying to find the actor to pin Defund the Police on and say, like, okay, like, you're the person pushing this and, like, we're going to hold you accountable for it and, like, now you need to, like, create the best case for it. But it was a quite an amorphous movement. I mean, we saw, like, the massive uprisings that happened last summer were, um, you know, very widespread. And we saw Defund the Police signs in, you know, cities across the country. Um, there are obviously, you know, groups that are are in favor of this. So you go to Movement for Black Lives and other um, different uh, abolition organizations and then also other other criminal justice organizations are talking about it, but I think part of the difficulty in evaluating this as a political long-term strategy is that there's not like some group that's made it its aim to increase across the United States, you know, social services with the goal of eventually making police departments obsolete. Um, I think that like you know, following the kind of uh, thing that Dylan you were talking about with the Ed reform movement would require this kind of centralization and and work and and accountability that could be done at that level, um, but it doesn't exist, which makes it a pretty potent political attack for Republicans because it's such an amorphous idea that's kind of just been tagged of anyone who's critical of police at all. Um, When we saw, especially right after um, George Floyd's murder, is that there was actually quite a large increase in support for police reform, for understanding that police uh, brutality was differentially affecting Black Americans. Um, That you know, spiked. I mean, after time it dissipated. It's like unclear whether that's just inherent to what was going to happen, regardless, because of uh, white backlash to this sort of politics, or because of some specific thing that was being done by the uh, protesters, or the fact that there were certain bad elements that were rioting in these cities as well. It's just really hard to tell, like, what was going on or media coverage of, of these incidents and how that was going on. So I I think the thing is here is just like, is there some role for a large, um, public opinion focused group to be increasing the salience of um, treating violent crime as a, uh, a problem that is solved by more than just police. That seems unambiguously true that someone should be doing that, that there are lots of interventions that could be reducing violent crime. That it's also possible that even if you gave police every single resource, that that is just not an institution that can possibly solve all crimes and that you do need to or prevent all crimes and prevent all crimes and that you would need to do other sorts of interventions as well, even if you had a fully funded every single thing that you wanted police departments that was like fully culturally fixed to make sure that they really just wanted to do the right thing. Like perhaps it's not possible that like just people can just Sherlock Holmes their way through <laughs> like um, uh, uh, fixing uh, all of the violent crime that occurs or all the crime that occurs in in a country. So I, I think part of this is just like it seems like there's a massive um, movement that could possibly happen um, that would be really helpful. I think it's clear that there's some funding in uh, the Build Back Better bill for Uh, increasing some community services. Uh, It's not anywhere near enough. And I think I would just say on the politics of this, too, um, the reason why I'm so down on the ability to actually substantively reform is that you can't even get Republicans to the table on qualified immunity. I mean, qualified immunity literally is just like a wholesale invented Supreme Court doctrine that protects civil servants from uh, basically committing massive constitutional violations constantly against people. I mean, these are things that Republicans, you have libertarians like the Institute for Justice that are in favor of ending qualified immunity. Republicans do not have actually a good argument for this. They just say that, like, it's going to make it harder for police to do their jobs like if they're committing constitutional violations, they're like definitionally not doing their jobs. So, I mean, to me, that that's just indication of the fact that, like, you're not going to get widespread reform. If you can't even say that it's illegal or prosecutable to say that police officers should not be able to just murder people indiscriminately.
3: So we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, but after we take a break, we're going to talk about this week's white paper, which is all about housing discrimination. Uh, stay with us. Welcome back. This week's white paper is by Peter Christensen from the University of Illinois, uh, Ignacio Sarmiento Barbieri of University of Los Andes in Bogota, Colombia, and Christopher Timmons of Duke. Uh, The paper is titled Racial Discrimination and Housing Outcomes in the United States Rental Market. Jerusalem, you're our resident housing guru. Why don't you walk us through it?
2: Yes. Welcome to Jerusalem's Housing Minute. a new segment of the Fox Media Podcast (laughs) Network.
3: You can't just create segments by announcing them. I, we've
1: talked about this. I, I think it's I think it's okay in this case. She's she's already gone her way anyway.
2: I'm gonna like we, ring a bell each time too, and just go ding ding ding. Or dear God. maybe we'll create. All a
3: right, one. tell us about the paper.
2: <laughs> sure. So this this is a very cool paper. So basically, what they do is um, these authors create a computer bot that sends inquiries from fake renters to over eight thousand property managers across fifty of the largest metropolitan housing markets. In the United States. And they, this bot does like sort of a three-day sequence of inquiries. It randomly picks from a set of 18 first and last name patterns that are coded to indicate whether the person is Black, Hispanic, Latinx, or White. And then inquiries, uh, and basically they see like you know do property managers respond to these inquiries, and is a differential based on race. And shocker, it is. Um, inquiries sent from white renters receive an average response rate of sixty percent. African Americans have a nine point three percent lower response rate. Hispanics uh, have a four point six lower response rate. For African Americans, it's worse in the Midwest. Um, for Hispanics, it's worst in the Northeast. And the cities that are worst for African Americans are Chicago, Los Angeles, and Louisville. And for Hispanics, it's Louisville, Houston, and Providence. So Louisville, yikes. But uh, I think that this is a really interesting paper for many reasons. One is that, you know, you have a situation here where a technology has allowed us to create a, almost a perfectly controlled experiment here. Um, this bot is not going to like call up property managers and sound different to each property manager they call because it's like a paid actor. It's like just a bot that's reaching out. It's perfectly timed to make sure that the requests to the property manager are happening within the same time frame each time. So like a day after the posting occurs. So you're just able to control for so many different things things here um, to make it like very clear that you are likely just isolating the effect of race that's going on. And they also find that uh, renters of color are facing stronger constraints in more segregated cities. So um, very clearly, this is something that is going to have an effect on residential segregation as well. Um, I I think I just want to underscore here, if you are less likely to get a response from a property manager, that means you are less likely to be living in that area. Non-response to a renter from a given racial ethnic identity corresponds to a 26% reduction in the probability of a subsequent lease by a renter from the same group. So essentially, they're able to go look at those property listings and find out like who actually ends up living there. And they're able to see that it actually is reducing the ability for people to live in more integrated spaces likely. I mean, this is a real problem. It costs money to apply to properties usually. So if this is happening at this level, it's likely also happening at the level which you are also applying. So it's monetarily affecting people, but it's also um, re-entrenching segregation um, in communities, which we have a lot of evidence says is, is really a problem for people's life outcomes.
1: One thing, well, this is just like an extremely selfish read of the study, but I often wonder with these studies using names, how my name would read into this because it's like, you know, German Lopez, people would like be confused by the German, um, but also the Lopez suggests I would be hurt here. Uh, I just find that stupid. Like it is dumb how much people read into these names to begin with. It's nice on Twitter because it trips racists up uh, for my sake. But
2: I've always had my roommate do it. So you could see that. I don't know what people think Jerusalem Demsis is, but I assume they think it's not white.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've had a number well, yeah, of people ask me if you're Jewish, uh, which yes. I think misunderstands Jewish names.
2: I've gotten uh, a lot well, of no. anti-Semitism online, which is very shocking because I'm like, wow, I feel bad. But it's not really, you know, you missed the assignment here. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Anyway, on a more serious note than that stupid thing I brought up, one thing I found interesting is just that the Northeast and Midwest were the most racist. Midwest doesn't really surprise me. I'm in Ohio, you know, I'm exposed to that quite often. But like the Northeast, a lot of people in the Northeast would like to think that they are not fitting into this category of more racist. I just find that interesting. And like it kind of shows in my view why like racial segregation is not just a problem for like those conservative areas of the country. It is like a actual problem everywhere in the country so for for me that indicates a a serious problem there that like people should not just assume that just because you know they feel more woke that necessarily they don't have these racist thoughts going on in their brain but the other aspect of this is just like the life consequences of this i mean on on one hand you can look at this like oh well this person can't get like can't rent a place and he just has to look for another but like One, that's not really how this works. Chances are this person is probably struggling to, like, find any place to rent if, if, like, this is something that's repeatedly happening to them. And I think the way this cascades where obviously we know, like, not having access to proper housing will lead to all sorts of problems down the line. But furthermore, like, we know that integrated places have, like, in terms of, like... Economic equality and racial equality have better outcomes in terms of like economics, education, crime, all that good stuff. And yet, you know, like this perpetuates segregation, as as Jerusalem was saying. So it's not just a matter of like, wow, this sucks for that person because now they're going to have a harder time finding a place to live. It's just a bigger context there where this actually makes it much harder to solve all
3: sorts of societal problems across the board. I wonder how much some of the regional differences we're seeing here are a are result of different sizes of of Black and Latino populations. That like one guess I would have is that if you're looking for an apartment in a southern city like Atlanta or, or Raleigh or Baton Rouge, that you're like likelier to interact with a Black property manager than you are in Boston or or uh, Milwaukee or, or other sort of less. Milwaukee might be a bad example, but but certainly in Boston, which is maybe 10 percent Black, the, paper is not designed to to elicit this but one thing i could imagine being the case in southern cities is that there are many more black property managers they're less likely to discriminate Uh, white property managers are just as likely to discriminate as white property managers in the north there's just fewer of them so that seems like something that might be going on here but also yeah i think an important takeaway here is is that there's no region of the United States that has a monopoly on prejudice and like Boston is one of the most racist cities in America and has been for a very, very long time.
1: Well, I mean, to your point, the West, which you would imagine has a higher Hispanic population, also had the least amount of discrimination against Hispanics. So like that, that makes sense. I think that the problem with that, though, is the takeaway is not good because it basically suggests the problem isn't um, like a particular region or way of thought or a cultural thing in a particular region. It's just, you know, white landlords are the problem. If that's the case, like, if if the the idea is that the way that you reduce racism is by having like a same race landlord, I mean, that's that's obviously an awful, <laughs> awful outcome.
2: And this is something that's like repeated in multiple other ways in the housing market too. I wrote an article recently about what's going on with housing voucher recipients. Basically there is a watchdog group that is going around and, and they're employing testers as like, you know, as the civil rights uh, movement of old would do all the time. And they're having these testers call and say, hey, is this available? And they'll mention that they're a Section 8 recipient and um, we'll see what happens to the tester. And so th- and so they find that there's discrimination against Section 8 recipients. But as I was going through the call log, there's also like very clearly like discrimination happening against um uh the tester because uh she has children. There's very clear Really there, you're finding evidence um, that there's racial discrimination going on as well. Um, they're using a black tester uh, uh, most often during these calls. And, you know, it, it's just really clear that there is so much of this happening, and that often people, um, I mean, part of the problem here is that there's just such a housing shortage that you have landlords able to discriminate on things other than just who's able to pay the best price. If you have like 10, Different potential tenants, all of whom can pay like the best likely price that you're able to get. Yeah, you'll raise rents, but then you can also say, I don't want children. I don't want black people. I don't want people who are going to have a lot of um, parties. So I'm going to discriminate against people who are like young as well. All these different kinds of things to make sure you get your quote unquote perfect tenant that's going to uh, align with a lot of beliefs that maybe wouldn't have been salient in a market that had a lot more tenant power. So and that's something that i think is really important and it just really underscores just how little um anyone is paying attention to what is going on in these interactions between landlords and prop- and, and uh and uh property managers and potential future tenants like we're watching as rent relief gets distributed slowly just our inability to even find Low-income tenants to be able to tell them about the existence of this. I mean, the fact that there is a, a, a you know a Fair Housing Act is almost irrelevant because nobody knows that it exists. Tenants know that it's never being enforced. Landlords know it's never being enforced. There are landlords that are not even aware that there are Fair Housing Act violations happening. Like I called several of the landlords, like or the property managers that were named in the suit by the uh, Housing Watchdog group I mentioned, and several of them were just like didn't even like one of the guys was talking to me. He's like, oh, like it was a new kid. He didn't even know it was a Legal, Like, this is like absurd. Like, one of the people that are being named in this is like Keller Williams Realty, which is like a national uh, international chain of property managers and realtors. So it's just like, you know, this is not a problem just of the fact that there are like racist people who exist in the market. It's that the market is being structured and government is being structured to make sure that no one ever gets caught.
1: Since this is a policy podcast, I, I wanted to, you know, just point out that like it is difficult to f- see this problem getting solved through policy in any, like, strong way. I mean, like, you, you a lot of this is obviously just what people read into a name and, like, all the preconceived biases that go into that. And I'm pointing that out because, like, there's a cultural need to take these issues more seriously. And I don't think we are. Um, Matt Glacias, uh, who obviously used to be a Weeds co-host, he's written about, like, how bad the research is on, like, diversity trainings. And, like, that's one way you do shape culture is, like, That kind of stuff, diversity trainings. And basically, there's no evidence that they work. There might be some evidence that they even cause a backlash. We just need to take this idea more seriously that, like, you know, solving racism requires actually confronting people culturally. Uh, It requires maybe doing things like canvassing. I think there's some good research for that in terms of, like, at least transphobia um, and anti immigrant attitudes. But Otherwise, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around how like this issue is solved in, in a policy way. And I just think that's worth pointing out.
2: I, I think I would say that there's a lot you can do with policy here actually like the federal government and state AGs could be running these testing programs basically constantly making it clear that if you are differentially responding to white applicants for these things you are going to be caught you are going to be fined you are going to be like named and shamed publicly and that it would require people to start thinking about that you could create rental registries for instance um that would exist in cities and in, uh, maybe across the United States where tenants and landlords would have uh, landlords would have to like say like hey this is my tenant, um, this is how much I'm charging them, and this is the property in which I manage and just like very basic information. And then fair housing advocates could easily contact tenants and say, hey, are any of these things happening to you? There are very simple fixes I think that could actually happen. And these are not like, I think, um, simple in the t- they would cost a lot of money and I think it would require setting up these systems. But in terms of like conceptually, it's like not hard to imagine people doing this. This is just scaling up what advocates are trying to do on their own right now outside of the government. And yeah, I mean, you're obviously right, Hermont. You're not going to get rid of like the fact that like if someone prefers a white applicant and they have two and it's impossible to tell why they chose one over the other, that's going to happen sometimes. But a lot of this stuff is happening in in the context of no one is even trying to catch the most egregious abuses that are happening quite regularly and quite openly. And on top of that, that like we have a housing market where it is extremely harmful for someone to get denied to see a A property. Right now, if like one of the places that I remember that was worse for um, African Americans is Los Angeles, like if there are like five, maybe rental places at a time that might be good fit for your personal family needs um, and that you are applying to, if one of those is not reaching out to you because you're black, that's 20% of your options. If you had a city where there were hundreds of potential rental units available to you, one person not responding to you, yeah, that's bad that they're racist, but like who cares? Like you can just go find someone else and it reduces the ability for people to be raised if the profit incentive is high enough for them to take on black tenants anyway. And so I think that there's a lot you could do with policy to make this not that the racism goes away, but it stops impacting people's lives.
1: Yeah, I th- guess I would just say I'm just pessimistic about like some of the <laughs> stuff you you mentioned. I, I mean, I'm sure it would help. Like, I, I think like state AGs running audits and things like that, that would, that would help. I, I think one thing we've learned with criminal justice systems like jury reform, for example, and just. You know courts in general is lawyers are very good at finding ways to be racist without coming off as explicitly racist and i i think they would find ways to be racist here (laughs) even if like state ags are running these audits or there's like more law enforcement going into like the fair housing act and things along those lines so uh, that's kind of what's driving my my uh take that there are limits on how much policy can do here and how we need to take this issue culturally it's not to say that we shouldn't do those things. I mean, they seem like common sense, obvious things, but it is like, they, I'm just skeptical that they would have that much of an effect based on this country's enduring
3: history of finding ways to be racist. I mean, I think a very fitting end for the Hermann Weeds panel era is, I guess I'm just pessimistic about this. <laughs> you are emoji. So on that cheerful note, um, we're going to wrap up. Thanks to to Vox's Jerusalem Demsus for joining the panel. Uh, Thanks to Herman Lopez for being here today, for hosting the Weeds for for the past few months and for for everything he's done for the show and for Vox over the years. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. You can get even more Weeds content by signing up for our newsletter go to vox.com slash weedsletter. Um, It's going to keep going after Herman leaves us. Uh, Dara Lind, who you, you know and love, will be stepping in. We will be back in your feeds this Friday with Herman. We'll be interviewing an expert on COVID rapid testing and how our testing regime before the vaccines could have been done better. It's the first in a series that we're calling America's Public Health Experiment. Each week we'll examine a different pandemic era policy, how it worked or didn't work, and how we can make it better next time. We'll see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.